So, um, thank you very much uh, for the introduction and thank you also for the Ibn Arabi Society's invitation to speak. Uh, I think that like all speakers at these symposia, I would like to express a special debt of gratitude because this is an opportunity for uh, me and whoever stands at such a podium to do a lot of work and exploration. So I'm extremely grateful for the opportunity to go into a remarkable subject. Uh, I want to start with a line from the Tarjuman al-Ashwat. When she kills with her glances, her speech restores to life, as though she, in giving life thereby, were Jesus. These days, the name Ibn Arabi is well enough known, both in the West and the East, and especially amongst such an august audience as is gathered here. And usually, if there's any doubt as to which Ibn Arabi we might be talking about, a person will add not his first name, Muhammad, but his title, Muhyiddin, reviver or enlivener of the religion, or Sheikh al-Akbar, the greatest spiritual master. In this talk, I would like to focus attention on the first of these epithets, Muhyiddin, and investigate what it means, especially since it has become so extricably linked to Ibn Arabi, and how it might relate to the image of Jesus as reviving the dead. Now, I want to begin with a personal anecdote. Uh, this concerns a manuscript which seems to have played uh, a large part in my life, one way or another, in the last 15 years or more. This is an image of that work, the first page of Ibn Arabi's Khiliyat al-Abdal, literally the adornment or the clothing of the substitutes those special saints who can appear in two places at the same time, which I have translated into English as the four pillars of spiritual transformation, so as to give more of a sense of the content of the work to a modern reader. This image is from a precious manuscript held in the Yusuf R. Library in Konya. It was part of Sadruddin al-Qunawi's private library for centuries. And you may remember that this was one of those manuscripts that was stolen from the Konya Library more than 15 years ago and then turned up in Christie's auction house in London where various members of this society managed to get it withdrawn from the sale and eventually returned to its rightful home. It was this image that appeared in the Christie's catalogue so one might say it is this very page that kick-started the archiving project which has been part of my work and Jane Clark's and others ever since. But here I want to look at one of the curiosities of this text, because at the beginning it states, as is customary with many copies of Ibn Arabi's writing, that it is written by, uh, and here's a translation for you, our master and our leader, the sheikh, the imam, the gnostic, the unique, the verifier, of the best of the Prophet's own circle, the Salaf, and the support of those who follow. Muhyiddin Abu Abdullah Muhammad bin Ali ibn Muhammad ibn al-Arabi at-Tai al-Hatimi al-Andalusi, may God be pleased with him, says Qala. And then the treatise begins. So at first sight, a typical laudatory opening done by the copyist in praise of his deceased master, judging from the radiallahu anhu, which means, may God be pleased with him, a pious formula for somebody who has died. However, that's all very nice, but on the last folio, the copyist notes in the margin that this copy was made in Malatya, in the land of Rum, Anatolia, on the 9th of Rabi al-Awal, 6 Zero 02 Hijri, which is 23rd of October 1205. In other words, when Ibn Arabi was very much alive and known to have been in Malatya, a small town in southern Turkey. So we know from the text that the original was composed three years earlier in Taif near Mecca. So this is perhaps one of the first copies ever made. But who then 
is the copyist who praises Ibn Arabi in such a fashion. If we look at the handwriting in this text and those bound with it in the same collection, we come across a real conundrum. According to Osman Yahya, it is in the hand of Ibn Arabi himself. Certainly, it looks more or less like the handwriting of the master, albeit with certain unusual features. For example, the dotting on the fa and the qaf is now in the eastern mashriqi style, not the western style, which he usually prefers. Now, when I was preparing this text for publication, I had to say something about the manuscript, but I really didn't know what to do. I was very unsure about who exactly had written it. I even went to Konya and rechecked that this piece of text at the beginning of the work had not been added later by somebody else. No, it was definitely the same pen, the same hand throughout. So how could this have happened? It looks like Ibn Arabi's handwriting, but stylistically it can't be, since the author is referred to at the beginning in the third person as our master and our imam. I conjectured, therefore, that one of the disciples, someone with him in Malatya, might have been given the job of making a copy and had undertaken to do it so faithfully that he had copied the master's handwriting as well. That was as far as I could go when The Four Pillars was published six years ago. Last year, I collaborated with my wife on a paper about Ibn Arabi's handwriting, and we came across the same quandary. Then suddenly, in a flash of insight, she saw exactly what had happened. And she said, but the title of the work, isn't it Khiliyat al-Abdal? The Abdal, the substitutes, those who can be in two places at the same time. In other words, in copying out this work some three years after it had been written, Ibn Arabi is writing about the author who wrote the original as if he were another. So the scribal Ibn Arabi can say, our master and imam. And he can give all these epithets, including Muhyiddin, to the authorial Ibn Arabi, the one who is inspired by God to compose the treatise. At the end of the treatise, he confirms that this is the case by prefacing the final poem, uh, the arrow there, by the way, the blue arrow goes down to the, the date which is given on the manuscript, and the other arrow prefaces the final poem with the words, and regarding this, please come in, there are plenty of spaces. So at the end of the treatise, he is saying, kultu," And regarding this, I say, as if it is the scribe, the scribal Ibn Arabi, adding a poem at the end to extol the virtues of the Abdal. So in this manner, Ibn Arabi is subtly demonstrating an aspect of the meaning of a badal, a substitute and how he is himself Badal. In fact, how we are all Badal, but we just don't realize it, because we can talk about ourselves in the third person. It is not something explained explicitly. It is not made palatable to the wonderful intellect by being spoon-fed to us in rational terms. It is left intrinsically self-explanatory, obvious as an illusion. Now, apart from my own experience of this text, where my working assumptions were shown to be completely spurious and ludicrous, I'd like to mention two particular things. First, how typical this is of the way that Ibn Arabi's inspiration can work on us as readers. We have various parts of a puzzle, and we put forward tentative hypotheses to explain how the parts fit together. 
but they don't fall into place until we see, through direct insight, how they actually link up. Just like pieces of a jigsaw where we've lost the box and we haven't got the picture on the front, or uh, ideas for a talk where we haven't got a clear sense of how the whole thing is going to work, suddenly everything falls into place, exactly as it is. So Ibn Arabi is speaking from this level of the whole vision of reality, which to him is self-evident, which to us, who live at the level of the mind, seems possibly incomprehensible, unclear, complex, or a grand edifice of mystical speculation, or whatever else we might imagine. In other words, our imaginings, our selfhood, are reflected back to us simply because we don't have the whole picture. This is precisely why he uses the word kashf, unveiling, which we might gloss as suddenly seeing the whole as it is, in whole and part. And what is unveiled depends on the context. For example, we have an endless fascination with uh, detective stories where suddenly a Poirot or a Morse has the whole picture and explains to all the stupid people who don't. The second point, and this is more relevant to us now, is the extraordinary mention of the title Muhyiddin. Possibly the first time that Ibn Arabi refers to himself like this. Uh, This is not a place for a commentary on the other titles, although they are extremely important too. Now, it's one of the tenets of uh, Islamic studies that Sufis would never refer to themselves by a title. This kind of self-praise doesn't sit well with the poverty they espouse. Originally, such titular names, uh, not in the sense of being in name only, but in the sense of it being a title, they were bestowed by the caliph on military or political leaders in recognition of their achievements, a sign of status or rank. These titles were very popular in Abbasid times, and the practice continued under the Seljuks and Ayyubids and became especially common among Sufis, as you know, Jalaluddin Rumi, Shihabuddin Surawadi, and so on and so on. Uh, Just as a few examples, because it's maybe of interest to some of you, uh, a collection of muhyiddins. This is by no means uh, uh, all there is. I've been scouring and finding a lot around the time of of Ibn Arabi himself. The first two, these uh, Ibn Zekis, are part of the Ibn Zeki family that uh, looked after Ibn Arabi in Damascus. Muhyiddin ibn Suraka, uh, who was also an Andalusian uh, and was known to Ibn Arabi, they, they met in Damascus. Muhyiddin and Nawawi, very well known as a hadith collector. These ones are pretty much all around the same time, apart from the top one, the Muhyiddin Abu Ma'ali. He was uh, the one who gave the, the sermon when Saladin uh, conquered Jerusalem. He was the one who gave the sermon in the Dome of the Rock. The ones at the bottom are interesting. Uh, You'll notice the dates from 1480 to 1580. They're all interesting because they are all, without exception, part of the Bairami order. Um, That would be a whole other discussion. And there are many in the Ottoman Empire who then became, who took on the name Muhyiddin precisely because it was associated with Ibn Arabi. Now, this is not the only time that Ibn Arabi himself uses the term Muhyiddin or Muhi. In a poem from the Diwan, he is presenting it as a kind of tribal boast, a fakhr. I am the enlivener, al-Muhi. Now, a very complex line. I have neither kunya nor country. This is one translation. I haven't got any other name. And I haven't got a country that I live in. That's one meaning. The other meaning would be, I don't speak allusively and I don't speak foolishly. Both meanings are possible. I am the Hatimi Arab, Muhammad. To every age there is one who is its essence, and I alone am that individual in this time. For people come only one after another. 
it's forbidden to the ages that two individuals be found in the same age. The poem concludes by stating that the quality of Mughi is something that comes directly from the divine, not as a right, but as a grace that is bestowed upon him. And then he says, something which the envious can only covet and strive for. So here we see the quality of Mughi designated as something unique, not shared by anybody else, linked to being the individual of the age, and at the same time, interestingly coupled with his Arab ancestry, Al-Hatim Atai, who came from the Yemen, spiritually associated with Jesus. This is then reiterated in other poems. For example, I am the seal of sainthood without any doubt, due to an inheritance of the Hashimi and the Messiah. So the, the seal is a twofold inheritance. On the one side from the Hashimi, being direct kin to the Prophet, descended from Muhammad's ancestor Hashim, and on the other from Jesus, the Messiah. Here, the focus is on this second part of the inheritance. Jesus as a seal of universal sainthood. And more particularly as Muhi. So let me look at this quality exemplified in Jesus according to Ibn Arabi. There are many qualities, and no doubt some of these qualities will come out in the discussions over the two days. But let me just mention certain key words en passant. First one, uh, zuhud, uh, renunciation of worldly affairs, usually translated sometimes as asceticism. Tajreed. Um, spiritual divesting, detachment, and freedom. Siaha, itinerant wandering. Fuck, the preference for poverty over wealth. Tahara, tachlis, purity, purification. All of which convey a sense of what is meant by spirit and the spiritual life as opposed to the material life of worldly involvement and acquisition. In the view of the Qur'an, Jesus is the Messiah, son of Mary, the messenger of God, and his word which he cast into Mary and a spirit from him. Ibn Arabi also calls him son of spirit because his father was Gabriel. And of course, spirit is life and life-giving. So Jesus is regarded as the exemplar beyond all others of enlivening, of bringing life to the non-living. And his vizier, he says, is John, Yahya, the one literally who is alive. We may recall the Quranic story of Jesus forming a bird out of clay and then breathing into it so that it came to life by God's permission as well as his giving life to the dead, as in the story of Lazarus. So two cases of animation. In the first, where the bird is created, it is a humanly created form which has no life, since human beings can only create material forms or similitudes of living beings, until life is breathed into it by divine permission. This we might characterize as a first life. In the second case of Lazarus, it is a human form into which the spirit has been breathed, but from which the life force appears to have drained away until the breath of Jesus revives it, a kind of second life. This is a proof text for a whole contemplation of the way in which humankind may or may not participate in God's creative act of giving life. As Ibn Arabi observes, the Quran specifies that Jesus is the one who breathes while the thing becomes a living bird by God's permission, a divine act even if mediated by the human. I'm not going to go into the intricacies of this contemplation except to mention that Ibn Arabi is quite explicit that only God is able to bring life to a thing The real, he says, the real alone possessing the secret of its arising and its resurrection. 
In other words, the two modes of its receiving life, its original life and its revivification after death. And we should note the particular importance of breath, echoing how spirit is described as being blown or breathed into the body, a breath moist with the water of life, enlivening the dead, and leading Ibn Arabi to identify Jesus himself as the symbol of God's creative act, the tequeen, of God saying, be to a thing, and it becomes. Now, I want to go through four uh, ways of understanding the divine name al-Muhi, according to Ibn Arabi. First, uh, the first three all come from the Kashf al-Ma'ana, um, a book which uh, has been translated into Spanish and French and which hopefully will arrive in English next year. It's on the divine names, and each name is treated in three different ways. So the first way, ta'alluq, is in terms of how we relate to the divine and how he relates to us. So Ibn Arabi writes that we are dependent on him as the one who revives our heart with the life of knowledge and enlivens our limbs with the life of the acts of obedience. So we can note here two ways in which this divine name operates, a reviving of the inner in terms of knowing God, and notice that that one is put first, and an enlivening of the outer in terms of acts of obedience. Obedience to the requirements of revelation, to the deen, the religion, which belongs to God. Incidentally, this distinction between inner, outer, heart, body is something also intrinsic to all the teachings on spiritual practice which are found in the Khiliyat al-Abdal. So, we may consider ourselves to be alive by virtue of being in this world, but unlike other creatures, being ignorant of our reality, our hearts are not alive until we recognize the source of our being and act in accordance with it. Not an intellectual understanding, but a knowledge occurring in the heart. A certain knowledge, ilmaliyakim, that transmutes into vision and realization. This recognizing, all its manifestations and ramifications in terms of action, is what Ibn Arabi calls being enlivened. And given, given that life is both physical and spiritual, one may sense here the import of being muhyiddin. The Quranic picture of this, to which Ibn Arabi alludes in several places, is that of dried up earth being revived by the rain. As it says in the Quran, amongst his signs is that you see the earth lying desolate. Uh, the word here means uh, dried up, containing no plants, uh, still, and also low, lowly. And when we send down water on it, it stirs, it comes into motion, and also the word means it rejoices, and it swells with life, it produces plants, in other words. Indeed, he who gives it life is the one who enlivens the dead, for he is capable of all things. So the imagery here is very precise. Just as parched earth is rejoiced by rain and becomes alive with the movement of growing things, so the lifeless soul is delighted by the joyous grace of the divine spirit and becomes enlivened. It's a very beautiful description of spiritual teaching. A further level of the dichotomy of still lifeless earth and moving, animating rain is described by Ibn Arabi as abandoning travelling. We have seen that stillness is preferable to movement and greater in the direct knowing of God that comes from the shifting of states in every breath. So all movement is then seen as the movement of the spirit with God as the true actor 
the human remains still motionless in their inner being, having realized the earth of servanthood. The second description of the name Muhi, which is classified as Tahakkuk, in terms of the divine himself, is the universal applicability of the name, the fact that all things are living and thus glorifying God. The enlivener is the one who gives life to every existent being so that it may glorify him with his praise or its praise. The pronoun is ambiguous in the Arabic. And he goes on to say, those endowed with mystical unveiling, in other words, with kashf, whether angels, prophets, or saints, have witnessed with their own eyes the manifestation of life in inanimate beings. So this is not an intellectual theory. This is a recognition. If the recognition occurs, we will see all things living all materia imbued with spirit, and praising God, not an action that we do, but as an activity completely intrinsic to life. Ibn Arabi often speaks from his own experience of encountering the living praise of other creatures, such as cats, horses, even shadows and drainpipes. The image that he gives of this cosmic life-giving to all beings is one of the most profound and far-reaching of his teachings. And it's one that underpins a huge quantity of his thought, namely his contemplation on breath and letters and the Arabic language of revelation. This is the science that he specifies as the privilege of Jesus and the key to all other saintly knowledge whose details he learned from the youth, the Fatah, the personified spirit who appeared to him at the Kaaba. Like everything else in the universe, for Ibn Arabi, words and their constituent letters are living beings. We may think of letters as bereft of meaning, they're inert, they just come along and we put them together into a word and suddenly magic meaning. But so when we listen, for example, to the playful sound of a baby learning language, well, that's just it. It's play, inconsequential babbling. For Ibn Arabi, however, letters are living creatures with their own qualities, not simply phonologically in sound, but visually how they appear in writing, grammatically, numerically, and so on. They are the living roots of all words and meaning. They express cosmic realities. They even have a hierarchy with their own kutub, pole, abdal, substitutes, and so on. So the formation of a word from letters and vowels is directly analogous to the formation of the human being into which the spirit is breathed. As Michel Chodkiewicz has justly observed, this is a question of the immediate perception of the secret reality of things, not of a concept developed by reflecting on texts. As dry as it may seem, grammatical terminology is rich in symbolism, and Ibn Arabi makes full use of the resources it offers. End of quote. First of all, it needs to be emphasized that unlike English or Latin languages, Arabic does not divide the letters into consonants and vowels. All the 28 Arabic letters are voiceless consonants described as stopping places of the breath. And on their own, they are unutterable. Even the letters alif, waw, and ya 
are treated as unvoweled letters, albeit a special case that may function phonetically for us as long vowels. But letters only become uttered, in other words, manifest, when breath and vocalizing motions, harakat, are applied to them. I'm embarrassed now because I'm going to talk a little bit about Arabic letters, and there are people in this room who know Arabic letters and what I'm going to say much better than I do. So you'll forgive me, I just want to make a certain particular point. Uh, the grammatical symbolism which Ibn Arabi uses is as complex as his teachings on the universe because it reflects the universe absolutely. So let's, um, let's do a little bit of Arabic and then compare it to English just to give you an idea. So I put up the letters uh, kaf, ta and ba reading right to left of course just backwards for those of you non-Arabs then we have kataba or ktb but I'm cheating because I'm putting vowels in there so this is really that's it it's uh, impossible to actually say any of this unless we put breath and vowels on top of it. Now unfortunately this particular uh, PowerPoint presentation didn't like Arabic vowels so I wasn't able to add them to it. But this word uh, could have many possibilities so it could be kataba, it could be kutiba, it could be kutub, it could be kutab all have different meanings so it could be active, it could be passive, it could be a plural noun meaning books could be a plural noun meaning thongs or sutures. Usually, the context would make clear what was meant, but without the voweling, the written word is wholly ambiguous. And there are also innumerable derivative declensions from this triliteral root. So we have takatub, which is corresponding with each other, making a contract. Iktataba, transcribing, writing down, and even being constipated. Kitaba, the act of writing. Maktab, the place where one writes, so it means your office or study. So on and so on. Let's compare that to English. I've put the letters WRT, which again, none of us can say. <laughs> so what are we going to make of this? Well, we could start with wart. We could have wort, we could have writ, write, wrote. We can have all of these perfectly easily. And we don't understand WRT at all, really. They're not semantically related, by the way, as you can tell. And in the Arabic language, the triliteral root, everything is semantically related. Here, wart has no relation whatsoever to writing. And then we can have other forms, writer, writer, rewrite, and of course, the beauty of the English language, we can have write off, write out, write down, and so on. The absence of vocalization does mean, especially if you don't put dots as well, diacritical points, does mean that reading old manuscripts is especially tricky. And we may note here that adding the vowels, adding the diacritical points, is part of declining a word, i'rab, a word which literally means speaking clearly and correctly, which is what Arabs do. So i'rab and being an Arab mean the same thing. So if you're an Arab, you know exactly what this says. If you leave them off, leave off these voweling marks and all the rest of it, it's called ujma. Ujma is indistinctness, ambiguity, which is what non-Arabs, Ajamis, do. So there is a very strict correlation between being an Arab, being voweled, being clear, and being a non-Arab, being unvoweled, being undotted, being ambiguous. It's a bit like the Greeks used to say that everybody who didn't speak Greek was a barbar, you know, barbarian. This is not a moral ambivalence, by the way. 
It's a profound sense of ambiguity which is written into the very fabric of existence itself. So, letters without vowels are immobile, silent, dead. And it's only the application of voweling through the agency of breath that gives them motion, sound, life. The letters are like earth lying desolate, waiting for the rain of voweling that stirs them into motion. So, when Jesus exhorted Ibn Arabi to practice tajrid, this word that means divesting, detachment, he was also encouraging him to a process of denuding and unspeaking, to render the earth of his reality bare of plants, to remove the vowels of his particular existence, which are both meanings of tajrid, so that the spirit would be fully realized in him. Now, I'm not going to go into the different kinds of vowels, of which there are basically three in Arabic, or according to Ibn Arabi's six little letters. Um, but I wanted just to mention one simple thing. We tend to think of spirit enlivening matter as a uniform process. To the Arab mind, and certainly in Ibn Arabi's conception, it is a triune process. So uh, the vowel a does not have the same function or meaning as the vowel u, which means that uh, there are three forms that the spirit may animate matter. Um, for example, uh, being unfolded from its origin, being embraced and raised, or being differentiated and lowered. Those are fundamental processes, which are, of course, related to the prayer, to the way that the, the person prays in, in uh, the religion, and many other things besides. One might also note that this is very, very similar to the modern threefold uh, view of the living cell which starts as unspecialized, it then grows by division and then it differentiates into greater degrees of specialization. It's no wonder when one thinks about all this, it's no wonder that Ibn Arabi should have begun his fusus by speaking of the whole cosmos as an indistinct, undifferentiated being within which there was no spirit, and into which the spirit is then blown, so that being can express itself in the constant effusion of self-revelation. It is exactly the same image. <coughs> so we come to the third form of the name Muhi which is how it is manifest in the human being, the tachalluk. He writes, whoever enlivens barren or dead earth, and whoever enlivens it is like one who has enlivened all of humanity, and whoever applies himself to reflection or meditation and penetrating perception, such a one enlivens his own soul and truly deserves to be called by the name enlivener. So here we have uh, an added element which is first and foremost a self-enlivening. Such a one enlivens his own soul whose very nature includes the enlivening of others. An inner identification with spirit a realization that life is divine and flowing in everything, such that the soul is fully open and receptive to the action of the spirit without any ability and power of its own. This is the participation in what Ibn Arabi calls luminous, sublime, eternal, divine life. In this context, <clears throat> Ibn Arabi often uses the Quranic image of a light 
by which someone walks. To describe, for example, the purification of the heart from ignorance. And as he says in the Fasus, which was quoted before, anyone who revives a dead soul through the life of knowledge with regard to a particular question relating to the knowledge of God has brought him to life by it. And he has a light by which he walks among the people. That is, among those resembling him in form. So that brings us now to the fourth kind of muhi, which is alluded to in a poem in the chapter devoted to a Jesus word in the Fasus. The one who knows in my heart gives him life when he gives us life. Uh, now the pronouns actually in the Arabic are quite ambiguous, but in this reading I'm following the commentaries of Al-Jandi, Jami and Abdullah Bosnavi which reflect on the mutuality of God and his image. In this poem, which begins, if not for him and if not for us, that which is would not have been, Ibn Arabi indicates that there is a sense in which the truly human being gives life to God himself. The one who knows in my heart, the light of knowing in the heart, refers to the complete human being, the insan al-kamil, who is the divine form, in other words, that which contains all the names. Hence, when God loves the human being that is his image, and I'm quoting now from Jandi, he becomes our hearing, our seeing, our realities, faculties and limbs in the closeness of supererogation and likewise we become his hearing, his seeing, his tongue, the realities of his names and his existences. It is this form that allows the real to express himself through all the names which would otherwise lie buried within him in a state of constriction and distress. This is the meaning of teshbi, the divine in us, the fully human who can give life to God when he gives us life. Now, I want to um, end with a sort of comment on something I alluded to earlier. The question of the youth. In chapter 1 of the Futuhat, Ibn Arabi describes his remarkable encounter with the spirit youth while circumambulating the Kaaba, a youth that is the genesis of the whole Futuhat and whom he describes in astounding rhyming prose as the speaker who is silent, or could be translated both speaking and silent. In other words, according to our analogies for earlier, he encompasses the manifest, the speaking realm, and the non-manifest, the silent realm. He's neither alive nor dead. In other words, he's not part of the mortal realm. And yet, he is living of uncontainable might, unique in time, none like him. Now, Ibn Arabi does not identify the youth any further, leaving his readers to ponder on who it might really be. Certainly a personification of spirit. But he's not Gabriel, since he specifies that he was not one of the angels, rather he was human. So if human, could it be Jesus? Certainly many of the descriptions could be directly applied to Jesus. For example, the title of the chapter is The Spirit from the details of whose constitution I took what I was made to record in this book. So the whole of the Futuhat is contained in his contemplation of this spirit. Living, of uncontainable might, this is the name Aziz, and uh, 
that, that would require a whole commentary in itself. Unique in time, none like him. Not part of the mortal realm. There is also mention of the right hand, or the Yemen, which is particularly associated with Jesus. If so, why did Ibn Arabi deliberately leave his identity so unclear? Was he concerned that he might be misunderstood and possibly vilified for apparently promoting Jesus above Muhammad, especially at the very center of the Islamic world? Was he tactfully covering the reality of Jesus just as Muhammad's hand is said to have covered the icon of Jesus when he entered the Kaaba. Well, certainly there is evidence of his care in masking the figure of Jesus in, for example, an earlier work, the Anka Mukhrib, where he used a letter code to remove all direct references to Jesus as seal of sainthood. Or are there deeper reasons such as the fact that Jesus is not an Arab, but Ajami, a non-Arab, hence inherently ambiguous. Or perhaps, and this is the most important part of it, should we beware of this kind of labelling, because due to our own obscurity, we are not clear enough, we are not Arab enough, to understand or have unveiled to us the youth's true nature. As I suggested in relation to the Khiliyat al-Abdal at the beginning, our suppositions may be very, very far from the real situation. So perhaps it serves to remind us that the nature and reality of Jesus are elevated way beyond our imaginings. In a hidden warning, Ibn Arabi says of the youth, he told me, that only the eminent, the sharif, only the eminent can recognize the eminent. He speaks to no one except in signs and symbols. When you understand him, you know that the purest language of the pure speakers, in other words, all the Arabs, does not comprehend him. And his articulation is not attained by the eloquence of the most eloquent. The fata, the youth, then, is less of a person or a persona in any real sense, more of a living process of self-revelation and unfolding of immediate knowledge. As Michel Chodkiewicz has put it, an epiphany of the divine speaker, or verbum dei. The knowledges placed within the pages of the Futuhat are the fruits of contemplating the constitution of this divine spirit and speaker. So let us observe and contemplate the precise parallel between Gabriel blowing into Mary in the formation of Jesus, Gabriel dictating to Muhammad in the formation of the Quran, and the spirit youth, the non-angelic heir of Gabriel, revealing to Ibn Arabi the heir of Muhammad in the formation of the Futuhat. And all the ones after the equals sign are words. So let me finish by talking about the word of God. At the beginning I mentioned this poem from uh, the Tarjuman, when she kills with her glances, her speech restores to life as though she, in giving life thereby, were Jesus. According to Ibn Arabi's commentary on this line, while the looks can kill Medusa-like beauty is described as annihilating the mystic in contemplation, the speech that brings to life suggests the full completion of the Adamic human being who is breathed into by the Divine Spirit as well as the divine word, be, kun, that brings all things into existence. Hence the quality of muhi that Jesus manifested as an inheritance from his father Gabriel 
is a giving of physical life through the agency of physical breath. A temporal manifestation that is naturally temporary since it concerns the life of the body. In the case of Ibn Arabi, heir of Jesus, it is a giving of life in knowledge through speech, luminous, divine, eternal, since it concerns the life of the soul. And knowledge has degrees. So, Sadruddin al-Qunawi, uh, recording a vision in which he sees Ibn Arabi after Ibn Arabi's death, asks for a, has, makes a very specific request and asks for the full realization after which there's no going back. To which Ibn Arabi says, how many spiritual children and companions have I killed and brought to life? But none of them attained to this. And then Sadruddin is granted the gift of full realization. Such is the utmost completion of a human being in self-knowledge and realization, an intimation of the meaning of Jesus in his second coming as the seal of universal sainthood. Hence, Ibn Arabi's writings themselves are inherently alive and enlivening as long as the alert reader is prepared, ready, willing to be killed by the glances of beauty and die to what they have understood of their own nature. Thank you. Thank you.